I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. Today we've got an excellent interview with academic Jason Bell uh, about the Canadian scholar and spy Winthrop Bell and his travels in post-war or interwar Germany and the uh, rise of uh, Nazism and his uh, messages to British Prime Ministers um, and to uh, senior interwar political figures in Great Britain, uh, presenting them uh, an alarming picture uh, of um, the the rise of fascism in, in Germany. Um, so without further ado, we're going to hear from Jason. I uh, hope you enjoy the interview. It was a, a pleasure to do uh, a fascinating conversation. So let's get into it. Okay, so welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. I am delighted to be joined by Jason Bell, um, author of Cracking the Nazi Code, which is the extraordinary and larger-than-life espionage story of Winthrop Bell, the Canadian academic and scholar and MI6 spy, um, whose kind of journey takes us through two world wars and through the kind of the the, the, the growing uh, menace of fascism in, in toward Germany. So, firstly, welcome. And, um, Thank you, Nick. Uh, so let's begin a little bit about... Um, because the, the, the book is quite an, an extraordinary tale of espionage. How did your involvement with the story begin? Where where did you engage with the story of Winthrop Bell? Sure, well, it was uh, really an accident. So I was looking for something else entirely in archives in Germany. This was about 15 years ago. I, I made a trip there to try to find a link between two philosophical schools, pragmatism and phenomenology. 
they sounded to me a lot alike, and I felt like there had to be some kind of missing link between them. In an archives in Germany in a city called Göttingen, I found a dissertation that linked the two schools of pragmatism and phenomenology. It was completed in 1914 by one Winthrop Bell. However, that dissertation was missing a couple of pages, mm-hmm. and I found out that his papers were housed in Canada, Eastern Canada, in a small university called Mount Allison University, but those papers were held under restriction. And they were being held, held under restriction for a few more years at that point. And so yes. I wrote the president of the university an email, or actually a letter, and asked for permission to research those a little bit early. Mm-hmm. President granted permission. I, I went in, I found the missing pages of the dissertation, but I also found why they were housed under restriction. So uh, Winthrop Bell had been giving information to the British Prime Minister, to David Lloyd George. I saw these meetings and his diaries and things like this. Mm-hmm. At the time, it struck me as sort of uh, an interesting side note. I was primarily interested in the philosophy story. So I put that part of it on ice for for uh, for, for for a period of years, about a, a decade before I really started looking at the uh, the political mm-hmm. part. I was focused on on exploring the, the, the philosophy. Uh, so around uh, 10 years later, I really started looking at the the history part of his papers, or I should say the political part of his papers, and was just astounded by what I found. And that's when I had to switch hats from philosophy to exploring the historical importance of this. It's, it's interesting you mentioned Lloyd George's name in that, because obviously, you know, Bell, as we will, will hear throughout this story, um, the, the first kind of part of the post-war story of Winthrop Bell is... Uh, becoming aware of Nazism, um, this relatively fringe organization in Weimar, Germany, for a good number of years. And obviously, Louis George was very well appraised about uh, about Nazism, to the point at which he, you know, Louis George was by no means in any way kind of sympathetic towards the Nazis, but he did go and visit Hitler in 1936 and think, well, you know, perhaps we have been too unfair with Germany and need to really revise uh, what we said at Versailles. So was Winthrop Bell, where, where was Winthrop Bell in that kind of conversation with Lloyd George? Well, the times and places where Winthrop Bell showed up to to advise Lloyd George, it was during crucial periods of the Versailles Peace Treaty negotiations. So this would have been in 1919. Mm-hmm. Uh, these were periods where there were David Lloyd George was was needing to make decisions really about how how much to tighten the screws on on Germany, how lenient to be versus uh, how punishing to be. And Winthrop Bell came in at these points and advised Lloyd George to be merciful. Um, And the grounds being that if England or Great Britain followed through on the most punishing version of reparations, there was going to be some kind of revolutionary backlash. And at this point, Winthrop Bell wasn't sure which side was going to take over, whether it was going to be the extreme leftist or the extreme rightist. Um, and so it was, so it's clear that David Lloyd George knew at this point that there was a, a right wing danger. Um, yeah. Now, at that point, they th- that right wing danger did not yet have Adolf Hitler as a captain. 
Uh, so Adolf Hitler was was not yet even involved in the movement. Yeah. And so David, so what David Lloyd George would have been hearing would have been kind of more at a theoretical, but a you know practical level that there's this group there that has these nationalist, hmm. anti-Semitic ideas. They're looking for uh, revenge against their racial enemies. But later on in the 30s, when when Hitler took over, he was in, engaged in uh, heavy concealment of his purpose of his purposes at this point. So so later on in the, in the 1930s, Winthrop Bell was advising other British figures, uh, not David Lloyd George any longer at that point, but explaining to them that Hitler was pretending to be peaceful uh, and to be an anti-communist when really he was anything but he, mm-hmm. he was planning a world war uh, mm-hmm. that was going to target uh, the West. Yeah. And there's a, there's a whole host, isn't there, of writers who were, shall we say, wise after the fact. You get um, people that were in, you know, people like William Shira, who um, his his memoirs are very much present him as the, the you know, the, this kind of voice of alarm. But um, the, the reality is not quite not not quite like that. But uh, but a whole host of post-war writers who were saying, oh, well, I. I saw it, you know, but for for a lot of for a lot of people, particularly in the the Britain's ruling classes, and again, these people are by no no means fascist, you know, they're not like Oswald Mosley, but they were they there was a whole generation of of British aristocrats happy with with some sort of accommodation uh, with Nazism. Um, to what extent was Winthrop Bell really a, a voice in the wilderness? Do you think? Well, it depends on, on who you're talking about, I, I'd say. So he um, so the the group that became the Nazis already as of early 1919 had their. Had their story straight, so the way that they were going to trick their enemies in the West, France, Great Britain, America, was going to be to portray themselves as anti-communist and pro-democracy. So when they were cornering British officers and British diplomats, that was the story that they were telling. Winthrop Bell saw the other side of this and saw what they were really up to. And so he was advising people, again, you know, David Lloyd George would have been one of them. Winston Churchill was another one. Uh, General Neil Malcolm, uh, British intelligence. One can see that his advice had immediate influence in 1919. So as the right wing was approaching Great Britain to try to make these deals where they would depose socialist democracy in order to to make themselves the government, uh, Britain was skeptical about this. And in part, it was because of the advice that they were getting from, from Winthrop Bell. And so you really see a sea change as 1919 goes on. So uh, early 1919, the the British had really kind of handed this, these right wing movements the the keys to Europe. The idea was that these these German right wingers were pretending that they were going to protect the eastern flanks of Europe against a, a communist uprising, mm-hmm. uh, and the the British believed this really through the summer of 1919. Mm-hmm. Winthrop Bell's reports in September and October were pointing out September and October of 1919 were pointing out that these German troops in, in Eastern Europe were not fighting the communists. They were instead pillaging the local people. And at this point, the British demanded that that Germany get out of Eastern Europe. 
demanded that the democratic government of Germany withdraw these troops. And then you see this uh, conflict that that becomes a war, uh, a, kind of a war in miniature between Britain uh, and Germany erupt in the eastern part of Europe. Democratic Germany withdrew its support from these, these reactionary movements. Reactionary movements tried to keep fighting on without that support. Mm. And so that was a concrete instance where Winthrop Bell's intelligence was heard and understood. But to be clear, these groups in the East were they were ideologically unified, but they were not yet marching under a single banner. So they weren't saying, you know, we're the Nazis. Yeah, uh, they had the ideology in place. Winthrop Bell already in, in the fall of 1919 was pointing out what that ideology pointed to it was going to be a, a, another world war. Hmm. Uh, but they were intentionally concealing themselves. Um, and to the point where they could for a while trick people like Winston Churchill uh, hmm. and some of the names that you mentioned into you know, seeming as if they were going to be an, an, an anti-leftist pro-democratic force. But it's uh, but uh, again, I, I, so you carry on the big one. Um, but I was just going to say, yeah, I, I think that, that what Winthrop Bell managed to do is to put kind of the, the bug in the ear of people like Winston Churchill and, and Neil Malcolm, who would have been these kind of, you know, yeah. conservative liberally people, uh, you know, centrists, I think, but with some kind of, you know, you know, you know, some some left and some right wing sympathies. Uh, but he kind of put the bug in their ear that this movement was uh, was to be examined more more carefully. Uh, yeah. And so you see Neil Malcolm, who was the head of the British military mission in Berlin in 1919, in, in one way, he was sympathetic to what he was hearing from from this fringe right about their purposes and wanting to defeat the left. Hmm. Uh, but yet he was skeptical of them. So he he wasn't believing them wholeheartedly. And you see something like that with Winston Churchill as well, that Winston yeah. Churchill is initially sympathetic to the to, to the claim that this is going to be fighting the fighting communism. But hmm. but he also has an eye on them. Uh, and so he's ready to look more closely. Because there's a, a little. Uh, 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 this is a, this is a story that isn't very well known. That you, you essentially in 1919 have the the German Freikorps fighting the Red Army in the Baltic states, um, and from as you say that there there isn't a, a Nazism at this point. There is a kind of a broad movement of. Um, uh, former soldiers infused with the the kind of the the anti-Semitic stab in the back myth, which has been, you know, originally comes directly from the um, uh, the general staff of of the German army, in order to to get themselves off the off the hook for the the, the defeat in the war. Um, to them, their their sort of anti-communism is that there is this horrible alien ideology in the east which is probably something to do with with these jews that we keep hearing about and it is marching westwards and we've got to fight another war to defend germany and um um also that these are you know extremely traumatized war veterans who aren't going to settle into into civilian life and want to want another fight so winston churchill that is fighting a, an anti-communist war in Russia, uh, you know, his intervention in the Russian civil war to uh, destroy the Bolshevik regime would probably have thought, well, these lads, you know, they're they're they're, they're probably probably not nice guys, but they're they are not nice guys at the moment. Um, 
And if you think in that in that same period of time, you only need to go forward to say 1922, and when you have Mussolini, whose um, stated goal is anti-communism, uh, marching on Rome, he has a remarkably sympathetic hearing from uh, British, French, and perhaps and, and even American elites who think, well. If he's gonna if he's gonna shoot a few communists, probably that's not the worst thing in the world. So you can see then how um, the development of fascist movements in Europe. We're not talking about just Germany because the fascist movements appearing in lots of different European countries um, might have had a uh, something of a free pass from from elite groups in democratic countries. That's exactly right. So, and and that's you know what these right wingers understood. So it, it so the the you know, British aristocracy and the leadership were being you know very clear about what they hated, mm. and they knew exactly the buttons to push in order to get support. And so that's kind of what, you know, one of the tragedies that I explore in the book is the way that British money was financing these right-wing movements as they were marauding through Ukraine and killing what a, at least tens of thousands of Jews. Some scholars think over 100,000 Jews. This was being paid for, or at least supported by the British government. Hmm. Uh, Winston Churchill gets word that this movement, German and German and right-wing Russian supported, is killing Jews in, in Ukraine and you know, tells them to stop. And the leader of this group uh, who you know, hates the Jews and is the one who's directing the persecution tells Churchill that he's asking, you know, asking his soldiers to tone it down. Uh, but really, it was it was a game. Uh, it, it was a, a game that was designed to manipulate the, the British public because it was so transparently obvious that, uh, that the British hated, or at least the. Uh, you know, the, the kind of the money class hated the communists, so it was easy, easy to manipulate them. Yeah. Uh, now, what Winthrop Bell sees, and the the suggestion I make in the book is so, so you don't yet have the, the name brand of National Socialism in 1919. This moniker only comes about in, uh, in, in early 1920. Uh, but what Winthrop Bell describes in, in 1919, in the spring of 1919, is these two ideologies merging in Berlin. Uh, in a self-conscious maneuver in which uh, the extremist branch of of communism, the extremist branch of nationalism are going to become unified. That isn't to say that all the the, the left-wingers were on board of, board with this. Obviously, many of them were not, and they, they kept on fighting the nationalists. Uh, but at least some of the influential figures in the left were, were willing to, to join mm. uh, on the grounds that they could read Karl Marx's notion of the dictatorship of the proletariat uh, as meaning a proletariat of the military workers. So we we in the military are workers and, and we're the hardest workers of all. Uh, and we're the ones who are going to control things. Hmm. Um, and yet there was at the same time, and this would have been uh, the predominant kind of uh, uh, manifestation of the ideology in Britain, would not have had that militaristic twinge. It was it would have been a, a pro-democratic socialism that meant you know, redistribution. Uh, and you know, in philosophy, we would call this equivocation, using the same word to mean a couple of different things. Socialism was meaning a very different thing to the right-wingers in Germany than it was to the left-wingers in Britain. Yeah. Uh, and yes. and so Churchill's you know, 
hearing about this redistribution, he does not want his own property redistributed and you know the the, the rest of the kind of upper crust elite. Uh, but the way that this was being sold in Germany in the East was uh, it was a socialism that was going to be you know very friendly to the to the billionaire industrialist and, and to the to the military. This would mean em- empowering them. It was going to be uh, a government by the people who control the military apparatus and you know, hated Jewish people and hated Slavic people. Yeah, it's a sort of, I mean, the way that I have often kind of. Um... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Navigated this this, this debate. It's on, on the sort of the, the current political right. It's a very... Uh, kind of, it's a, it's a good good weapon against the left to say, ah, Hitler was a socialist. Well, no, no, he wasn't. This idea of national socialism is socialism, i.e., uh, a sort of a, a redistribution of of wealth and uh, um, living, you know, agreeable living conditions for people within the nation, within the the racial body. If you are not a, a white Aryan German, then it, you know, you're 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 excluded. So it's it is a, a it is a racialism more than anything else, um, and and in all racialisms you have to treat the uh, the majority group that you are favouring over the minority. You have to treat them, them well, um, otherwise you know your your kind of um, your regime falls apart very quickly. Much as you know, uh, much as 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 you could look in in say apartheid South Africa. Anyway, so how does Rob Bell become a secret agent? So the the story remains somewhat mysterious. Um, Excuse me. Sorry. Um, So, yeah, it it remains somewhat mysterious. So it wasn't uh, a simple path because Winthrop Bell was a Canadian uh, and so the way that Britain worked then, he was a he was a British subject. He was not a Canadian citizen, uh, and so it it had to go through multiple tracks at once. So he was being supported by Robert Borden, the Prime Minister of Canada, who seems to be the the initial principal mover, uh, by Lord Morris Hankey, future Lord Morris Hankey in uh, in Britain, who was a kind of a spy master, master of intelligence there. Uh, Winthrop Bell managed to impress him early, apparently even before he met with uh, Robert Borden. Uh, but then it also needed a sign off from the uh, the the ambassador, the, the diplomat of the British diplomat or ambassador who was in charge of Canada. 
Uh, so all of these things needed to be fulfilled at once. So it was complicated and it slowed things down. This is what was happening in, in the fall and winter of, uh, of 1918. Uh, so it, it's, it's hard to say exactly you know, the moment at which it happened or, or which it, it clearly happened. Um, but uh, it, it, it did happen. What was, was kind of the upshot of it with Canadian money. Uh, so the person who was, who was financing Winthrop Bell's espionage salary was uh, Robert Borden, the, the prime minister of Canada at this point, MI6 was, was functionally broke. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they were having you know, serious budget cutbacks because of post-war austerity measures. Canada had money. Uh, so, so they got him the money. Um, the story that Winthrop Bell tells in his letters is that this appointment came about because of his meeting with the Canadian prime minister, uh, which happened late in 1918. Uh, and I think that's true. Without you know, Borden's sign-off, this wouldn't have happened. But I think equally as important were the the friendships that Winthrop Bell had made when he was in uh, Ruleben prison camp in Germany during World War One, the, the prison camp for civilians. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were a lot of uh, influential Britons who were housed there, uh, and among them were people who uh, were friends with uh, the the very most important uh, British figures, and so that's how Winthrop Bell got an introduction okay. uh, to Morris Hankey uh, and had an early interview with him. And hmm. Winthrop obviously knew his stuff. Uh, he had f- friends on the G- German general staff. Oh, actually, I, sh- I should say that was a little bit later that he was friends with, with people, German general staff. But uh, even as of 1918, he was he was friends with people who were prominent in German military intelligence. So he had an inside story about uh, the situation on the ground and the political situation. Okay. Uh, so both military and, and political acumen. We should add here that for the, for anyone that's unfamiliar with the story, He'd been interned in Germany during World War One, hadn't he? He war had broken out. He'd been had he been working as, as an academic in Germany in 1914. Am I right in thinking? That's correct. So, so he was he'd, he'd arrived to to get his PhD in in philosophy, uh, studying under Edmund Husserl, who is the founder of phenomenology. Yeah, he was just finishing his dissertation as the war broke out in in 1914. So he ended up defending his dissertation in his place of detention. His academic committee marched uh, in, in, into his cell uh, to conduct the examination, uh, and a few months later, he was in uh, a federal or me, a national prison camp. Right, right, and he stayed there for the duration of the war. Um, right. So he would have had. I mean, if you think about, if you imagine, you you wake up in November, nineteen eighteen. Um, you know, you're transported there, and think about what you would have seen. You'd have seen a country on the brink of starvation because of a huge naval blockade and um, defeat on, on multiple fronts. You'd have seen um, anarchy on the streets as there's first there's a revolution that sweeps away the Kaiser. Um, and then in the spring of the January of 1919, there's a, a, a failed uprising by the Spartacists in uh, Berlin. And then in, uh, you know, uh, across a couple of cities, there's the, the Rata Republic and, and a few other little uprisings. So you'd have had an, a, a window seat. And, and then, obviously, in 1919, he's saying to Lloyd George, look, seriously, don't push this country even further than it's already being pushed. So he, he would have had a very informed view of, 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 the, of the, the chaos that Germany was in. 
Um, so, and and there probably weren't many Britons, Americans, Canadians, um, you know, English speaking people who had that kind of ringside seat to post-war Germany. They would have, you know, heard it in other ways. That's correct. Right. In, in fact, I, I think Winthrop Bell had the very most privileged view of all because he had these friends on the inside. So he, through his connection, so he had been at the University of Göttingen, which was the premier mathematics and physics university in Germany before World War One and during World War One. And even though he was a philosopher, he made friends with these people, including uh, the Nobel Prize-winning physicist Max Born. Uh, so these were people who were recruited into 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 German military intelligence during World War One. They were liberal, pro-democratic, and so as things were falling apart in 1918, these people were visiting him in prison and giving him an inside scoop about what was going on. Uh, so that made him unique among the prisoners there. And and of course, at this point, uh, MI6's penetration into Germany would have been very shallow. They were primarily focused on Belgium and France. Mm. Uh, so Winthrop Bell knew these things that that uh, other people didn't know. And what Winthrop was seeing in, in November of 1918 was uh, that there was still this holding uh, – uh, there was still a holding pattern. So so Germany still had a lot of order. Uh, civilization was was uh, was was keeping intact, even though the starvation was already happening. So hundreds of thousands of Germans had died of starvation uh, because of the blockade. People were still hungry. Uh, and yet the police were still in the streets. Order was still uh, was still present. Uh he was. He, he writes about uh, you know how he was how how in November he he hears the signs of the revolution. He hears gunshots while he's eating in a restaurant. So there's this this notion that you can live this really ordinary life, uh, and the anarchy is somewhere, but it's not like uh, a complete collapse at all. And when he goes back into Germany as part of his espionage mission early in in 1919, uh, at this point uh, there's. He, he talks about an, an orderly customs examination at the border. When he was leaving the Netherlands, things were, were disorganized there. So in, in, a, in funny ways, uh, this, this German notion of order was was still strong mm. and perpetuated through the spring of 1919. So even as people are starving to death, even as there's these battles out in the streets, uh, what Bell is advising Britain is there's still this highly organized group of people who want democracy to succeed and they have the agreement of the bulk of the German people. So this yes. situation can easily be saved despite the desperation, despite the the, the civil wars that are going on. Uh, on. On the surface, it looks like like this pure tumultuousness uh, in which the, the, the Bolsheviks, the leftists could take over at any moment. Uh, but in reality, the center is holding the left remains a fringe movement. Hmm. Uh, the right wing is, uh, uh, despite their their current kind of lack of uh, immediate military prowess, are the ones who could eventually take over. But it would take a, a number of years before this would happen. Yeah. Throughout history, you find, particularly 20th century history, you find this relationship between people on the ground who are in places like Cambodia, Vietnam, Iran, Chile, Weimar, Germany, and 
prime ministers and presidents who, despite being at the centre of events, often haven't got a clue about which way the, uh, the country that they're interested in is going to go. And often have to, um, you know, I know Franklin Roosevelt, John F. Kennedy, various British prime ministers would just have people, scholars, journalists, academics, lawyers, travelling salesmen that they that they sort of knew. I would say, you've been there. What's actually been happening? Uh, and the and a lot of it is to do with failures of intelligence gathering. You know, actual, you know things like MI6 and later on the CIA, not really having the first idea. Um, and presidents and prime ministers having to trust and base their decisions on these quite extraordinary characters. Absolutely. And, and one of the things I, I saw, so, so MI6 had a really good read on the German situation. And I've been really impressed by the the, the way that MI6 was advising David Lloyd George and, and the British power brokers during 1919. Uh, but looking at David Lloyd George's papers at the Parliamentary Archives in the UK, you see this is just one of the many things that he's hearing. So his ear is also you know being filled up with like industrialist pressure, right? The in, hmm. in, industrialists are, are at this moment uh, terrified that cheap German labor and German know-how is going to you know, blast them out of the market. So yeah. they're trying to figure out ways to marginalize Germany so so they can can take control. Uh, the financiers are making arguments. Uh, then of course he has to have his ear to the to to the popular opinion because he he needs his own political party to be to be reelected. Uh, so there's a constant flood of information coming at him. Uh, there's, I mean, there, there's a, a real fact. He's he's the first prime minister who's taking this intelligence really seriously as part of his decision-making process. Uh, and yet that's not the only thing that he's hearing. This is, you know, one of just a, a constellation of events that he needs to keep track of mm -hmm. uh, in, in order to to make these political decisions. And then there's the fact of this, this grand coalition that was ruling Britain at the time. Uh, the, even though he he was not a conservative, he was uh, a liberal. Uh, his government is comprised largely of these conservatives, yeah. and he can't simply do whatever he wants. He has to yeah. to keep them happy, uh, and he has to keep the population happy. And mm -hmm. uh, this means uh, you know negotiating with with the press uh, in order to to you know basically save his own hat. If if the press turns against him, he, he's in trouble. Yeah, uh, but. What, what MI6 and, and Mansfield Smith coming uh, and that whole organization we're doing there was really spot on. Their their read of the German situation was was just about as close to perfect as you can get in, yeah. in 1919, uh, and largely that was through Winthrop Bell and, and through his connections. Uh, so yeah. he he had access to uh, the the German government, he the the pro Democrats in, in the German government. Uh, his his intelligence was being discussed not only by the prime minister of Britain and in Canada, but also by the prime minister of, uh, or the, the, the chancellor of Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, the Germans recognized him as being pro-democratic and liberal and on their side. Uh, and so they really turned over the keys to, keys of the intelligence kingdom to, to him as well and, and decided mm -hmm. it, was, it would be smart to let him know exactly what was going on. Uh, he was feeding this to Mansfield Smith Cumming, who mm -hmm. was uh, the head of MI6, who was you know, no dummy. No. Uh, and he he was not 
revealing uh, in in his own writing what he thought, but you can tell by the way yeah. that Winthrop Bell was was meeting these people, the Prime Minister of Britain, the way that his stories were going to pre- to the press, uh, that MI6 was clearly on board yeah. with this plan to save German democracy, liberal democracy, and, and to, to marginalize the extreme left and the extreme right in German politics. Yeah. We must um, draw to a close in, in, in a moment. The, the Zoom clock is ticking down. Um, so f- firstly, what I'd like to say is thank you so much for coming on the podcast and telling us this extraordinary story and the and illuminating all these kind of connections between war and diplomacy and intelligence and, and uh, scholarship. Uh, and secondly, always the question, um, the, the book is currently um, available in, in all, all good online and offline retailers. Uh, it's actually being released in September in uh, in I think in audio form, but it'll be physically released in uh, September 26th, I believe, in in Canada, and then October 26th in the United Kingdom. So we should give the the, the readership, uh, the listeners, a heads up when it's it's available. So let's finish there. Thank you so very much. And I, I do hope that uh, we get the chance to talk about intelligence history and a host of other things again in the future, if, you, if you'd be interested. I would be delighted. I'll, I'll be in I'll be in the UK this fall, so uh, I okay. might even get, get to see you in person. So. Well, that would be wonderful. Let me know, and uh, we'll see what we can arrange. Fantastic. Well, thank you so very much, Nick. I really appreciate it. It's lovely. Thank you. It's a pleasure. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.